John, the eighth chapter. I encourage you to be here tonight. We meet again at six o'clock on Sunday evening. And um, for those of you that don't know, our Sunday evening service is different than our Sunday morning service. And it's a little more family time sometimes. It's a smaller group to be sure. And tonight Jacob will be preaching as he often does on Sunday nights. And so um, make sure that you're here in your place and look forward to time again in the Word and the time of fellowship at uh, six o'clock. John chapter 8, I'm going to read a lengthy passage uh, to set both the context and then to zoom in on the passage that we're going to be looking at more specifically this morning. Uh, These are familiar words, uh, but sometimes words that we hurry through. So John chapter 8, I'm going to start reading in verse number 1. The Bible says, "Jesus uh, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Um, Let's be careful here to notice verse number four. The word master simply means teacher. Uh, The Pharisees were not calling Jesus their master as though he were their Lord. They were recognizing his role as a teacher. Verse number five says, Now Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself, and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down, and wrote on the ground, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself. Thy record is not true. Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know whence I came and whither I go, but you cannot tell whence I came and whither I go. You judge after the flesh, I judge no man. And yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bears witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. Then said they unto him, Where is thy father? Jesus answered, You neither know me nor my father. If you had known me, you should have known my father also. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. Father, again this morning we thank you for your word. and We thank you for the fact that you have given to us in our hands this day a a precious copy of your divinely inspired book. We're so grateful this morning that the words that we read aren't from some human imagination, but they've come from you. And as we look at them this morning, we're grateful that we're not dependent on the understanding of a human being, but we're going to hear from your Holy Spirit as he guides us into truth this morning. And so, Lord, it's in those promises that we rest, and we ask you to do the work in our hearts that man cannot do. We pray for your blessing in these moments, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. In a few weeks, first part of July, so maybe a couple of months, I guess, 
a group of us from the church are making plans to go down to watch the Charlotte Knights play baseball. Uh, if you're not a baseball fan, all baseball seems like it's the same. I mean, baseball is baseball. It's nine people trying to chase after a ball on a field. It's pretty much the same size no matter where you go. But uh, the Charlotte Knights play in uh, what is considered a triple-A minor league baseball. Uh, these are the fellows that are hoping to make it one step higher so they can go play in the major leagues because in the major leagues they make the major money. Um, they've been at it for a while, most of them. Some began way down in what's called instructional ball, and then they play A ball, and they play double A ball, and they play triple A ball all on their way. They're hoping to get to the major leagues. Now, the reality is when we go down and we see the Knights play, we're going to see some pretty good baseball players. In fact, if, if we line them up and we said to this guy, how far can you hit the ball? He can hit the ball just as far <clears throat> excuse me, as a major league player. He can. <clears throat> he can hit the ball no matter how fast you throw it to him just as well as a major league player. We start looking at the pitchers. They can throw the ball just as hard. They can throw a curveball just as well. Their changeup is probably just as good. You know the difference between those guys and the ones that are playing in the major leagues? The ones playing in the major leagues can do it all the time. The ones doing it down here can't do it all the time. He can throw the ball hard, but he can't always get it where it needs to be. He can throw that curveball, and man, sometimes it looks amazing, but other times it looks like a wounded duck. And that's why he's in Charlotte and not in Chicago. If you're a golfer or a bowler, you can relate. If you're a golfer, the only reason you go back to the golf course is because of that one shot that you did two, two rounds ago, right? You know that one? where it came off your club and it just sang. I mean, it looked like Phil Mickelson or Phil, Phil in the blank. Wow, wow, wow. And then what was next? Oh, ow, why do I play this stupid game? It's a matter of consistency. Some of you go bowling on Sunday nights. I know you do. I see your scores. You put them there on the Facebook for all of us to see them. There's a reason you're not playing in the Pro Bowlers Tour, right? Now, every once in a while, you'll throw a strike. I mean, it's beautiful, right? I mean, it breaks just so, and it hits just so, and the pins, whoa, there it is. And on a good night, you do that twice in a row, and now you're really feeling good, right? You do realize the pros do that frame after frame after frame after frame. Consistency is the difference. You know why some restaurants open, and they do so well, and other restaurants open and disappear in a matter of months? Consistency. You go there and have a good meal, that's a good thing. You go back and you have a lousy meal, you may or may not give it a third shot. But if you go to a place and it's the same good meal every time, every time, every time, the reason Mr. Pete loves the Rock Hill Diner, consistency. He knows what he's going to get. He literally knows what he's going to get. Every time he walks in the door, there's consistency. Wouldn't it be great if every area of our life could be just that consistent? Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Now, I stand here this morning to confess to you that my life is not always the model of consistency. How about you? Some days we do pretty good. Some opportunities we have, we do pretty good. And then other times, we, boy, we fail miserably. And we say, if I could have just done the second time the thing that I had done the first time, if I could have done that first time thing the second time like I did it the first time, I'd feel a whole lot better about myself the third time. But the truth is we ride a roller coaster. Some days we're up and some days we're down. I was reading this passage of this particular day in the life of the Lord, and the Bible tells us that it started early in the morning, verse number 2, where he went to the temple and he began to teach. Jesus was a teacher, and he was often in the temple teaching. 
And in the middle of his teaching, they come to him with this woman and they drag up some theological question. Now, we could wrangle all day about the fact that they had brought to him this woman taken in adultery. The idea is she was caught in the act. Now, I'm not too smart, but generally it takes two, right? But they snatched her up. And they brought her to the temple, and they threw her in front of Jesus and said, we've caught her. Now, the law says we're supposed to kill her. What do you say? See, they'd already heard enough of his teaching to know that he didn't always say what they said, and he didn't always respond the way that they thought he should have responded. So they pushed her up there a little closer and said, what are you going to do? And you remember this dramatic story of Jesus not saying a word, just beginning to write with his finger in the sand. And let you that's without sin cast the first stone. He continues writing until they're all gone. Where did they all go? Would you love to know what he wrote in the sand? Names, dates, places? I don't know. Says that they departed from the eldest to the youngest. Maybe he just started writing their names down with their birthdays from the oldest to the youngest, right? Just to say, I know you, and I know you, and I know you. And the old one figured it out first and said, oh, why am I first on that list? Oh, off I go. Jesus forgave her. And so they came back again with another question. In verse number 12, Jesus said, again, he begins teaching them. And again, they responded because they didn't like his teaching. They accused him of being a liar. They accused him of being a deceiver. By the time all of this is over, the Bible says they pick up stones and they're ready to kill him. Because by the time all of this is done, he says as plainly as he knows how to say to them, I am the son of God. And they want no part of it. Think of all the times that the Pharisees came to try to trick Jesus. And every time, he answered in the same way. He answered with grace, but he answered with truth. He he was always kind to those that seemed to be the greatest victims, and he was always the most merciless, it seemed, to those that should have known better. He was consistent. Now, I, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, of course Jesus was consistent. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus had an advantage. I'm not Jesus. And if you have any delusions that you are, let us just follow you around for a couple of days and we'll be able to point out very quickly, none of us are Jesus, right? And so it's unfair, Bob. It's unfair for you to say, why aren't we consistent like Jesus? Well, I would remind you that the scripture tells us over and again that Jesus came here to give us a pattern, to give us an example, to tell us how we're supposed to walk. I would also remind you that most of the time, Jesus didn't use some kind of divine hocus-pocus to get out of his problems. Most of the time, he spoke and he responded in the same way that you and I can speak and that you and I can respond. Can I point out three things that come to mind as I look at this passage and I think about the Lord's consistency? Uh, First of all, I would say that Jesus knew who he was. In fact, if we begin reading at verse number 12 again, Jesus spake again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. Down in verse number 28, he said to them that he was the son of man. That's a title that's used over and over again. It refers to the fact that he is the Messiah. In verse number 16, he tells them clearly that he is the son of God. If I yet judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me. In fact, he tells them in verse number 28 that he is God himself. Look at verse 28. The Bible says, Then said Jesus unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then ye shall know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Look more carefully in the middle of the verse, Then shall you know that I am he. I am he. Uh, The construction in the Greek is just two very simple words. They are the words I and the word am. And you will know that I am. 
I am. You've heard that before, right? Somewhere in our Bible study, we've come across that phrase, I, I am. All the way back in Exodus chapter 4, when Moses was negotiating with the Lord, and he said, how can I go to your people? How can I be your spokesman? I don't even know your name. You remember what God said? My name is I am that I am. And from that point forward, every time we come across that phrase, I am, I am, I am, and Jesus sort of slipped it right by them, I am. And he says it again more clearly to them down in verse number 58 at the end of this day. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And you read that verse and you say, well, there's a grammatical problem. Jesus didn't got his present and past all. No, he knew exactly what he was saying. Before Abraham was, I was already the self-existent one. I was already this God that you claim to be worshiping. And it's at that point they were ready literally to run him out of town more than on a rail. They pick up stones to stone him, and they were ready to kill him at that moment. But as we've already read, his hour had not yet come. Wouldn't it be nice if we had that same kind of identity understanding about who we are? I, I want to speak for a minute to a portion of the room. Some of you in this room can also say, not in the same way exactly that Jesus did, but you can also say, I am a child of God. John chapter 1, verse number 12, the scripture says that he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. The power. It's not hocus pocus power. That's authority power. He gave them the right to as many as believed on him. He gave them the authority to be called the sons of God. I'm a child of God today, not because I was born into the human race. I'm a child of God tonight, not because I've been a good enough person or I've marked off enough tick boxes on God's list of things to do. But I can say I'm a child of God today because of the grace of God that has saved me by his power when I put my faith and trust in him. Uh, John, uh, chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 3, turn there with me. 1 John chapter 3. Beginning in the first verse, the Bible says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we can be called the sons of God. And he has a plan for his children, and he is making us more and more into the image of his Son. And one day we will stand before him in his presence with a glorified body, not limited like these physical earthly bodies we have right now, rejoicing in the fulfillment of that promise and that reality that we are the sons of God. Galatians chapter 4 puts it this way. Galatians, the fourth chapter. Beginning again at the first verse. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. But he is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. 
And because your sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. Before Jesus came, in the case of the Jews, before Jesus came, the best they could do was try to keep the law. And they found out very quickly it is impossible to keep that law. Um, the law, by the way, is much bigger than the Ten Commandments, but let's just focus on those ten. How have you done this week? No other gods before me. Has there been anything in your life this week that has been more important than the Lord? Oh, no, well, we'll leave this. Uh, what's that one about um, bearing false witness against your neighbor? You don't tell any lies. How have we done that on that week? We don't covet. Have you watched a commercial this week and said, yeah? I would look better with that. Yes, I do need that. Has your neighbor gotten something that you didn't and somewhere inside of you, you just said, that's not fair. Those are violations, the Bible tells us, of those Ten Commandments. Um, don't commit adultery. Jesus explained that that's not only the act, but it's the very thought. How are we doing? To become angry with our brother, the scripture says, is the same thing as committing murder. And we begin to look at those Ten Commandments and we realize pretty quickly, I failed miserably on those, maybe even on a fairly regular basis. The law was impossible to keep. And that was the whole point of the law. The point of the law was to show us that we cannot do it on our own. Some of you have tried your best to be as good as you can, and you know what you found out? You're still not good enough. Try as you might. We grit our teeth and we close our eyes and we clench our fists and we say, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, until reality smacks us in the face and we say, I know I can't. And there are people all over the world who are desperate because they have finally concluded that they have no hope within themselves. And so they begin to turn to whatever it is that they can find, whatever thing that sounds like spirituality, whatever thing that sounds like self-improvement, whatever thing it is that sounds like it might make them feel better on the inside, and if I can't feel better on the outside, maybe at least I'll feel better, or if I can't feel better on the inside, at least maybe I can feel better on the outside, and so I chase pleasure, I chase riches, I chase whatever, because I just can't be good enough. And there's that feeling of emptiness that haunts them everywhere they go. And the scripture says, then Jesus came. Jesus came to this world to do what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus responded to us in a way that only he could. And he provided for us the eternal life that only he could, so that we might have life in his name. Um, the scripture tells us here in Galatians, the fourth chapter, that as a result of what Jesus did, we were redeemed under the law. That means we were forgiven of our sins. We went to him and we said, we're hopeless. And he said, I know. I need help. I need forgiveness. And he said, I can grant that to you. The passage goes on to say that we are now his sons. The Bible goes on to tell us that because the spirit of God dwells within us, Second Peter tells us that we are now partakers of the divine nature. Have you ever noticed how much kids are like their parents? Parents, let me ask you this. Is there something, don't make your head go up and down. Please don't make your head go up and down. Your children are watching you right now. They're watching. Is there something that your child does that makes you just go, mm, and part of the reason it makes you go, mm, is because you know you do that same thing yourself, and you know what the end of that thing is going to be if that kid continues to do that thing? You know what I'm talking about? Just make your eyes go like this. Make your eyes go up and down. Yeah, all right, I see you. Yeah, right? Why? Because our kids have our nature. Our kids follow along somehow. It's in the DNA. It's, we didn't teach them that, but they have it somehow. And the scripture says, now as children of God, we are partakers of his divine nature. Wow. So I don't have to live the old way? Mm -mm. 
because the Spirit of God now dwells within me. The passage goes on to say that we have been adopted with all of the legal rights incumbent upon us as natural-born children. Most of you know this. Our two sons are adopted. But the law sees them as our naturally-born kids. If Betty Ann and I had died somewhere along the way when they were little children, they would have gotten not everything we owed, owned, but everything we owed, because all we had was debt. They would have gotten all of that. The law said it's your problem now, right? They're ours. Every good thing that happens to me flows over to them. Every good thing that we get from our Father above comes to us because we are his children with all of those rights. The Bible tells us that we then are heirs that we have something to look forward to receiving. The scripture tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse number 1, that we are justified by faith. We have been made right as a process of that forgiveness. Not only does God forgive us of our sins, but he hands to us the justification that is in Jesus Christ, and he now sees us through Christ's righteousness. What part of that do we deserve? None of it. For by grace are you saved through faith. And we enjoy all of these things as a result of the grace of God. That is our identity. We are children of God, forgiven, on our way to heaven. I think sometimes all we see when we talk about what it means to be a Christian is the fact that we're going to live in heaven one day. Now, I'm looking forward to living in heaven one day. How about you? I'm glad I don't have to face the alternative. How about you? But that's only one small part of what it is that we have in Christ. We don't just go through our life as Christians saying, man, life is miserable, things are tough, I'm struggling all the way, but one of these days it'll all be worth it. God didn't save you and leave you here abandoned. You're his child. New creatures. If any man be in Christ, old things are passed away. He is a new creature. Literally, he's a new species. And why wouldn't he be? We have a new father. So it only makes sense that we're now new Christians in Christ. You see, consistency requires a starting point. And this starting point isn't a restart. This starting point is a new start. This starting point begins all over again. That's why the Word of God calls it a new birth. It's a new beginning. And so let me ask you this question today. Has there been a moment in your life when you could say, yep, my spiritual life began at that point. There was a moment when I recognized that I was a sinner. There was a moment when I recognized that I was hopeless. There was a moment that I recognized that I could not stand in the presence of a holy God. And there was nothing I could do about it. And then Jesus came. And I understood that he took all of my sin on him and he paid the price, he paid the penalty. He made this exchange with me, taking my sin upon him and handing me his righteousness. Yes, that was the day that it began. If there wasn't that moment in time, you have no hope of consistency. Worse than that, you have no hope of eternal life. And everything that I'm going to say from this point on does not apply to you. And that's why I said a few minutes ago, there's a certain group of people in here that can say, yes, I'm a child of God. But if you're not part of that group, you're not excluded. There's an invitation for you to come today to find the light of the world, to get this redemption, to be able to receive the same adoption that the rest of us have received. Jesus not only knew who he was, but he knew who his father was. That's the other side of the coin of being the son of God, right? I'm his child, but that also means that he's my father. Let's go back to John chapter 8. As Jesus began to talk to these Pharisees and they accused him of lying, his record of being of himself and, and untrue, he began to respond to him about what the basis of his record was. 
Verse number 16, he says that my father is the one that sent me. Yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am the father that sent me. Uh, Verse number 18, he says that the father is the one who bore witness of him. I am one that bear witness of myself, and my father that hath sent me beareth witness of me. He says he's the one who guides my steps. Look down at verse number 28. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then ye shall know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. He told them that his Father was the one who was always present with him. Verse number 29, He that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. Went on to say that my father is righteous and just and true. Look down at verse number 42. He compared his father with their father. He said, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word, you are of your father, the devil. And the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. That's not like Jesus' father. Our father is good and just and truthful in all things. Now the fact that we know who our father is ought to change the way that we behave. It ought to change our reliance on what it is that we have to do. I'm... Do you remember being a kid? Can I take some of you back that far? Do you remember? Scratch out the cobwebs. I know you teenagers. It was last Thursday. I got it. Let me just, I'll leave you alone. I was going to pick on you, but I'm going to leave you, Ryland. Say thank you. You're welcome. You old people. Do you remember when you were young and your mother would say to you, we have to go to the doctor, the dentist, the, the foot plate, whatever, and you went. And you would go see the doctor or the dentist or whatever. My doctor was a man by the name of Stanton. I remember him very well. He was a chain smoker. This is true. I am not making it up. Some of you had chain smoking doctors, maybe. He would do the exam. And when he was done, he would sit in his chair. He would roll it back. He'd light up a cigarette. And he'd begin to tell my mother what was wrong with me. That was exactly, I am old, old. But I remember when it was all over, we'd leave Dr. Stanton's office smelling a little bit of smoke. And we'd go out to the front. And there would be a big, tall counter. And I was about this big. The counter was about this big. And my mom would talk to some other lady behind the counter. I had no idea what was going on up there, nor did I care. All I knew is I was done. I didn't need a shot, right? That's how how important is the doctor. Now, you know, old person, now what was going on up there, right? But when you were little, did you care about that conversation? Did it worry you in the least? When your mother or your father said, we must go to the doctor, did you say, oh, but mother, but father, with what shall we pay the good physician? Did you? No, he's a doctor. I don't want to go to the doctor. I'm going to get a shot. I don't want to have to go to the doctor. That's all you were worried about. Your parents took care of it. Uh, You got a hole in your shoe because your toe had grown out the end. And you would go and you'd stick your foot up in your father's face. You got a hole in my shoe. I got a hole in the shoe and the hole. And the father, you know, your father would groan at you like somehow you'd done something wrong by growing. I remember one year in high school. This was me. It was not trendy. It was not stylish. It was pants that didn't fit. Why? Because I decided in one year to just grow. That was the year of growing. And I was as awkward as a baby giraffe because every day the floor was farther away than it had been the day before. You remember that? 
And I'd go, I remember my soft, it was my sophomore year in high school, somebody signed my yearbook, Dear Noah, sorry that flood never came. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, that was it. And I'd go to my parents, I'd say, new pants, I need new pants, I need new pants. Did I care that pants over there at the J.C. Penney were going to come? No, why? That was a parent problem, right? Now, can I remind you who your father is? There are times we need to understand this is a father problem. And I can go running to him. You say, what does that have to do with consistency? I'm so glad you asked, or we wouldn't have finished the message. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. I apologize, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Ah, Specifically, let's look at verse number 2. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Glory and virtue. Glory and virtue, those are words that reek of consistency and inconsistency, aren't they? How's your virtue? Some days good, some days bad. Let's remember who our Father is. Let's remember what he's given us. Verse number three says that he has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things that pertain to life and godliness. Now we know he's given us all things that pertain to life because he has provided for us everything that was necessary for our spiritual life, right? We are saved by grace. We're saved because of what Jesus did on the cross. There's nothing that we can do, right? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy hath he saved us. So we know he has given us everything that pertains to life. But the Bible says he's also given us everything that pertains to godliness. He has equipped us with this divine power. How? Through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. My job as a child of God is to know my Father better and better all the time. My job as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is to know him better and better all the time so that he might be reflected and magnified, the Apostle Paul said, in me. You see, my consistency falls apart when Bob is visible. My consistency is what it ought to be when the Lord Jesus is visible and shining out of my life. And my heavenly Father has said, I have provided for you what you need. Stop resting in yourself. Stop running back to your own discipline. Stop trying to figure out what it is and where your bootstraps are and all of that stuff and just fall back on your face in front of me and commit yourself to me again. Lord, I want you to be seen in me. Our consistency fails when suddenly we want to make sure that others see us rather than Jesus. Jesus was consistent finally because he knew what his job was. Consistency for you and for me requires some sort of a pattern. Let's go back to those baseball players. Maybe we'll pick on you as a golfer. Your swing isn't consistent, so you hire a coach, a pro, and he stands behind you. Maybe he's got a video camera and he takes pictures and he shows you your swing. They do all of it on a computer now, right? Your swing should be here. Your swing is over there. Have you fellas been through any of this stuff? I don't golf because I don't want to put myself through that stuff. And you begin to see a pattern. You begin to see, oh, this is how it's supposed to go. 
Professional athletes, quarterbacks, learn, move your feet like this, do it again, 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 until that pattern just becomes second nature to them. When you cook, some of you ladies, you don't think about a thing that's happening in the kitchen. Your hands are flying, your brain, just it's on autopilot. Why? You've done it so many times. Jesus provides for us that pattern of consistency. He provides for us that role model. The Spirit of God provides for us that enabling power so that we might be able to do the work that God has called us to. In the case of Jesus, he knew specifically what his job was. Let's go back to John, down to chapter number 9, verse 3. The disciples now, they're the ones that start asking the theological questions. It's not the Pharisees anymore. They bring a man who was blind from birth, and they asked the Lord who sinned, him or his parents. Isn't it great to be a theological object lesson? How'd you like to be that guy? Snatched up, come with us, sit down here, we want to talk about you. In verse number three, the Bible says, Jesus answered, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus said, my job is to do the works of God. My job is to glorify God. My job in this particular case is to see this man receive his sight so that God might be glorified at the end of it. Jesus said, in order for God to be glorified, I'm going to have to do something. I'm going to have to be obedient to what it is that my Father asks of me for that to happen. Um, Our job is no different, by the way. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus said to those who were around him, you're the light of the world. John chapter 9, I'm the light of the world. But now he's handing it over. I'm leaving. And you're going to be the light of the world. Therefore, let your good works, let your good works so shine before men that they may see them. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You want to be consistent? Figure out that your biggest task today is to glorify God. My biggest task tomorrow is not to help the Lejeunes unload their truck, although that's number one on my to-do list. My biggest task tomorrow is to glorify God, which means that while I'm unloading the truck, I need to do it in a way that glorifies the Lord, right? While I'm spending time with my brothers in Christ, I need to do it in a way that glorifies the Lord. While I'm spending time in the Lejeune's community, I need to do it in a way that glorifies the Lord so that when other people see us working, they'll perhaps be able to glorify God as a result of what's there. Consistency is found in little things. So let me ask you this. If these little things of just simply obeying God, these little things of saying my motive is to glorify God, is there something in your life right now, something in your habits, something in your plans, something in your daily routine that you know doesn't glorify God? And what ought we do with that? What is that thing that needs to be done right now that we know is keeping us from the consistency that we ought to have? You see, life changes don't happen, generally speaking, overnight, do they? They happen over a period of time as we develop right habits and right patterns, right motives, right responses, to the point that those things do become second nature to us. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a church that was always consistent, that everything we did always glorified the Lord. It's in the same passage. I didn't read it. It's in the 29th verse of chapter 8. Jesus said, I always do the things that please my Father. Wouldn't it be great if that could be our testimony? 
Well, it will be only as we know him and determine in our hearts that we want to be more like him, which really means that we determine in our hearts to allow him to do his work in us and that we stop fighting against his spirit. And when we see those things that we know ought not to be, we respond, we repent, we ask forgiveness, we avoid them for his glory. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the reality that it's not our good behavior that pleases you, but it's our relationship with you that brings you joy. So help us this morning to evaluate what our relationship has been. Father, my heart goes out this morning, first of all, to those that might be here that don't have the hope of eternal life, that don't have the reality of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that don't have the confidence to be able to say that I'm a child of God. Lord, will you speak to those? Will you convict? Will you draw them to yourself? And then, Lord, those of us as your children, you know so many times we want to do the right thing. We long to have a life that's pleasing to you and a life that glorifies you. But we live in a sinful world. We're wrapped in flesh that pulls us in a different direction. May we yield to the working of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Our heads are bowed.